Hello, salam, and welcome to another episode of the Ajam Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rustin, and today we have a very special episode. We are exploring the political and historical context behind the conflict in Indian-controlled Jammu and Kashmir, as well as the role of Kashmiri poetry as a medium for understanding the decades-long occupation and the resistance to it. As our listeners may know, just a few days ago, on October 31st, the controversial Jammu and Kashmir Reorganization Act of 2019 came into effect. This bill, which has been passed by Indian Parliament in early August, formally revokes Jammu and Kashmir's special status, which has been in place since 1947, and forcibly integrates it into India. In the following interview, which was recorded in early September, Terin Sevilla, an assistant professor of South Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, interviews Severe Kaul, the A.M. Rosenthal Professor of English at the University of Pennsylvania, and the author of the book Of Gardens and Graves, Essays on Kashmir, published by Three Essays Collective in 2015. So without further delay, here's Teren Sevilla and Suvir Kaul. here having this conversation today due to India's decision to de-operationalize the special status of Kashmir and to forcefully integrate Jammu, Kashmir and Ladakh into India on August the 5th. Kashmir is at present the most militarized region of the globe. Since August the 5th, Kashmiris have suffered a curfew, the lack of access to telecommunications and an utter suspension of its democratic institutions. As we learn from reports and film footage, human rights abuses are rampant, as are detentions of Kashmiris, adults and children alike. Kashmiris suffer from the lack of access to medical facilities and restrictions on religious institutions, amongst other forms of repression. The Indian government, led by the Hindu nationalist Bharatiya Janata Party, however has found widespread support for its policy and has been allowed by domestic and international actors to present the militarization of Kashmir and its suspension of democratic institutions as an internal matter of governance. If we could step back for a moment, Suvir, how do you trace the genealogy of the current militarization and occupation of Kashmir? You know, I'd have to go even further back than the most recent uh, phase of hyper-militarization, which is now 30 years old. And for this, we have to go back, as we have to do with much else in the making of India and Pakistan, to August 1947 and the coming of independence. Uh, what began to happen then was that a number of princely states that had treaty relations with the British hoped that they'd be able to retain their independence even after the creation of India and Pakistan. Hyderabad was one of them, Junagadh was another, and Jammu and Kashmir, Muslim-majority state ruled by a Hindu Dogra ruler, 
was another state, a princely state, that imagined that it would be able to stay independent. The answer was that such latitude was not available, not from the British government, not from Pakistan, not from India. And so for a brief moment after the 14th and the 15th of August in 1947, the Maharaja of Kashmir tried his best to work out a system where he'd be able to establish a, a parallel distance from both the Pakistani administration and the Indian administration. Now, at this moment, this Maharaja was also dealing with the fact that he had an anti-colonial independence movement on his hands, led by a Kashmiri politician called Sheikh Abdullah. And Sheikh Abdullah was uh, anti-colonial in that he was trying to free the large mass of Kashmiris from the grip that the Maharaja, the feudal grip that the Maharaja had over the entire population. So, as part of the turmoil of 1947, population movements, etc., the Maharaja's armies and uh, some allies moved to try and push uh, a large number of uh, Kashmiri Muslims out of the Jammu area, the southern part of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. And this was resented enormously by the people who lived in what is now called Azad Kashmir, Free Kashmir by Pakistanis and those who lived there and which the Indians think of as Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. So a number of armed, what Indians think of as a tribal incursion, a number of armed tribal mercenaries aided by the newly uh, formed uh, Pakistani army flooded into uh, Jammu and Kashmir in an attempt to wrest the Maharaja state away from his control. That's the moment at which the Maharaja signed instruments of accession to India, which allowed India to airlift in their uh, ground troops. And they fought the tribals and pushed them away to a point that now a territorial limit that forms the line of control, the armed line of control between Pakistan and India. Now, I've taken a while to lay out this uh, sketch just to remind us that the state of Jammu and Kashmir is now divided and under the control of three countries, not just two. The western part of it is under the control of Pakistan. The central area, including Jammu, the Kashmir Valley and Ladakh is under the control of India. The northwest part, Gilgit, Baltistan, is under the control of Pakistan. And the northeastern section, which is really an arid uh, mountain plateau called Aksai Chin, is under the control of China. Now, it is out of this kind of difficult political circumstances that Jammu and Kashmir emerged as a contested and disputed territory. The United Nations was asked to intervene. They did. They basically insisted that there be a plebiscite uh, once uh, matters on the ground were calm and India agreed that there would be a plebiscite to or decide the future of Jammu and Kashmir. But there was always a caveat, a rider. Because India said, and the United Nations agreed, that when Pakistan withdrew all its troops from the undivided uh, state of Jammu and Kashmir, that's when the plebiscite would be held. Of course, Pakistan was not about to do that. And of course, India was not about to conduct a plebiscite because it became clear very quickly that there were enough Kashmiris even in the early 50s when Sheikh Abdullah was the prime minister of Jammu and Kashmir for them not to want to amalgamate completely with India. So in Indian terms, they come, came up with a constitutional compromise, something called Article 370, which suggested that Jammu and Kashmir had a special status in the Indian Union. 
This is the article that has now been overridden by the Indian government in a kind of unconstitutional maneuver, a maneuver that has yet to be adjudicated by the Indian Supreme Court. But what they did was override, or as you asked, Terran, they de-operationalized Article 370, and they did more than that, because now Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh have been bifurcated. They have been separated from each other. There is no single state that includes all these three entities. Jammu and Kashmir have been merged into a single union territory to be administered directly from Delhi and Ladakh into a second union territory also to be administered from Delhi. Technically, assembly elections are meant to happen in Jammu and Kashmir, but as with all union territories, the local legislature will have very few powers and all business and administration will largely be conducted out of Delhi. That's the long history. Now, very quickly to the hyper-militarization. In 1989, an armed insurgency broke out in Kashmir, where young militants, some from within Kashmir, some from Afghanistan, some from Pakistan, they actually took up arms against the Indian state. Two things happened as a consequence of this. The small minority of Hindu pundits living in Kashmir fled the valley in sheer fear. And the Indian state cracked down on the militants. For the last 30 years, Kashmir has resembled, with some interludes of peace, an armed camp with a massive security apparatus, very highly militarized and armed, keeping Kashmiris pinned to their state. That's the long history of the hyper-militarization you spoke about. If I may bring us back to the provisions of Article 370, is it right to assume that Article 370 has only existed on paper? The Indian state has been able to extend regulations over decades through a variety of presidential interventions. It has regularly dismissed state governments to appoint governors with these presidential interventions. It is also a misnomer that the state of Jammu and Kashmir was peculiar in the regard of enjoying a special status within the federal Indian structure. The circulation on information on Kashmir's special status, however, continues to shape popular opinion in Indian society. The Indian government does seem very invested in this uh, image of the Article 370 and the shaping of popular opinion. Exactly right, Terran. That is what has happened since 1952, actually, to Article 370. Because of a series of decisions or judgments from the Supreme Court of India, as well as a whole series of administrative and governing governance decisions since then, Article 370 was basically hollowed out. And so many of the autonomies that were supposedly granted by this article to the state government of Jammu and Kashmir were gotten rid of. Now, there's a very complicated political history here, which involves Sheikh Abdullah, who was uh, locked up in jail for almost 20 years because he tried to insist on some of these autonomies which threatened the central government. But in 1974, there was uh, an accord between um, Mrs. Indira Gandhi, the Prime Minister of India then, and Sheikh Abdullah, which restored him to the chief ministership, but seemed to set the seal on an agreement that said that even though Article 370 would remain on paper as a requirement of the Constitution, Nobody would really think too hard or push too forcefully for the kinds of autonomies that it granted. 
But what this has meant is that over time, the relationship between administration and governance in Jammu and Kashmir and the central Indian government has always been precarious, with the central Indian government reshaping administration in Kashmir to suit its own interests. This has often, as you pointed out, taken the fact of dismissing elected state governments and appointing governors, or in several instances, arranging for elections to be held in such a lopsided and rigged manner that Kashmiri public opinion could not be reflected in their choice of candidates. So yes, by the time we got to the present moment and the 5th of August and the deoperationalization of Article 370, we were dealing with a hollowed out relationship, a paper relationship between the supposedly semi-autonomous state of Jammu and Kashmir and the Indian Union. Of course, the Indian government, and this is true not only of Kashmir, it's true especially of Kashmir, but it's true of a number of political dissenters across the country in the uh, last uh, five or six years. People have been locked up for sedition charges for being uh, sympathetic to mass movements of one kind or the other, not even active participants. So it comes as no surprise that the Indian government or different agencies of the Indian government are actually instituting court cases, sedition cases against students, against activists who are calling attention to the simple unconstitutionality of what they've done in Kashmir and the extraordinary human rights abuses that Kashmiris have been subject to for years now and continue to be subject to even as we speak. How would you reconcile this political history that you have charted out for us very kindly? How would you reconcile this political history with the suggestion that we also understand the more recent hyper-militarization or occupation of Indian-administered Kashmir as a microcosm of a Hindu nationalist movement's hegemony in India? Even discursively, for the matter, the, the government led by Narendra Modi, who won his second term in office this year, has consistently celebrated its own particularity and praised its own brazenness to depart from the allegedly pseudo-secularist governments of the past. I think this is a remarkably important question, uh, Terran, because there is no way to understand the actions of the Indian government, not only vis-a-vis Kashmir, but let's say what is happening with the a uh, new survey of citizens um, of citizenship in Assam without understanding that the BJP-led coalition that rules India now, that was voted to power overwhelmingly uh, less than a year ago for the second time, that they are basically members of the Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, the RSS, which for almost a century now, for a century now, has been pushing towards their idea of a majoritarian Hindu nation. Not just culturally Hindu, but politically Hindu. For them, the capturing of state power is only the first step into uh, a process that makes sure that all minorities, whether Muslim or Christian in India, live in fear of their Hindu big brothers. That's the term they use. Everybody else is supposed to imagine living within the Hindu joint family as younger brothers. Now, it is this kind of pernicious um, uh, Hindu majoritarianism that guides a great many of this government's, central government's policies, and certainly has been responsible for the vindictiveness with which, and the uh, eagerness with which they have moved to destroy or deoperationalize Article 370 in Jammu and Kashmir. 
and that partly is my fear that jammu and kashmir is a test case for a series of constitutional but anti constitutional maneuvers that are going to be made over the next few years to put into place institutions that will one after the other make sure that india does not remain even a constitutionally secular socialist republic the socialism has been forgotten and now the secularism is being chipped away at and what has happened in jammu and kashmir is for me the first major step in the crafting of a majoritarian hindu nation and so if i may again refer to the popularity of the bjp led government's policy in kashmir i mean it has drawn the support of various members of indian society including members of the indian government and youtube pop artists celebrating the avenues available for indian men now to marry fair skinned kashmiri brides nonetheless it's perhaps more striking than an equally vocal group of members of indian society who would be described as liberals have been supportive of the occupation of kashmir how do you account for this liberal support would you conceive of it simply as the government's co-option of liberals with the narrative of the article 370 being a barrier to kashmir's integration and development the article has also been represented as an impediment to the liberation of kashmiri women in addition to this the deoperationalization of kashmir's special status has also been justified by invoking the cause of kashmiri pandits which you mentioned earlier How have members of the Kashmiri Pandit community in Delhi, for instance, understood the implications of steps being taken to abrogate Kashmiri's special status? First, you know it's extraordinary how pernicious nationalism in the way in which the BJP have crafted it can be. It is a enormously exclusionary nationalism. It its vocabulary is that of inclusion. but it is predicated upon the idea that you have to find minority scapegoats who you will blame for the lack of cohesion that supposedly is meant to define the indian and the majority hindu nation now one of the most ugly parts of this has been the sense that once article 370 has been gotten rid of it's possible now for the dark skinned hindu men of the plains to go off to kashmir to marry pretty because fair kashmiri women there is such rampant ugliness around this kind of representation and yes it is being celebrated and so it's become possible for people like us to try and understand how it is that the bjp government has been able to establish this kind of nationalist uh, spell over populations whose interests are so often in fact being denied by the same bjp governments where they are so there is something that social scientists have to really think hard about as we understand the rise of the bjp because it's not simply a political accident that they've come to power the way they have they've actually been able to convince a large mass of otherwise poor and not very well off indians that their future lies in dominating the minorities in india and that of course includes the muslims of jammu and kashmir why are some indian liberals supporting this this is a question i have often asked myself and in fact i may have said this to you earlier i wrote my book on kashmir precisely because i wanted to convince my lefty friends in delhi my progressive friends in delhi that what was happening in kashmir is something they really needed to pay attention to because it was the ultimate challenge to indian democracy 
For the last 30 years, Jammu and Kashmir life on the street has not looked like life on the street should look at in a democracy, even if that a space is a conflict zone. The police and more than the police, the central government paramilitaries and more than the central government paramilitaries, the army at the borders and in uh, certain district areas, they have established their security grid that is so complete that between surveillance, incarceration, torture, so many young Kashmiri men in particular have been taken away from their uh, families and either returned broken or have been killed and caused to disappear. So, Indian liberals have been very slow to respond to this kind of carnage. In the same way as in the 50s, when there were insurgent movements in Nagaland and after that in Mizoram and in Manipur, Indian liberals didn't pay particular attention. It's only locals there who were calling attention to what the Indian paramilitaries and the army were doing to them. So, as a matter of fact, the last 50 years in India, in the border zones, in the northeast of India, but also in the north of India, that is Jammu and Kashmir, in the border zones, more uh, military heft has held ground than has political practice. So I sometimes believe, and perhaps this is unkind of me, that even my liberal friends, when they think, oh, now we'll have a solution to the Kashmir problem are doing so because they are grasping at straws, because they refuse to recognize exactly what India has been doing in Jammu and Kashmir for the last 30 years, not simply since the 5th of August. Now, for those of our listeners who are interested, uh, interested in this, the Kashmiri pundits, who were a tiny minority, anywhere between 3 and 4% uh, of the valley, the Kashmiri Hindus, the largest bulk of them fled in fear in uh, 1989 and 1990 in particular because of the fact that a number of Kashmiri pundits were targeted and killed by militants in that period. This is absolutely true and nobody but nobody should ever uh, suggest that their fear and their terror and their desire to preserve their life is not to be taken seriously. But at the same time, far more, the militants were killing far more Muslims, Kashmiri Muslims, who they thought were identified with the government. So it isn't as if there was a unified block of Muslims persecuting a tiny minority of Hindus. That's the way it is often represented. It just wasn't so in practice. Precisely because Hindus were such a tiny uh, but influential and socially significant minority, they felt terrorized by what they saw around them. There are some conspiracy theories that suggested that the governor at that time, one uh, Jagmohan sent by Delhi, he basically wanted the large mass of pundits out of the valley so that the paramilitaries and military could go after the militants into all kinds of neighborhoods without fear that they would be harming Hindus. Some of this might be true, but I don't want to dignify it in its entirety because that's not the only reason why Hindus left. They were genuinely terrified. Since then, however, both the Congress central government and now the BJP-led central government has done really nothing for these pundits that would enable their return. And I cannot see how the abrogation or the deoperationalization of Article 370 is going to make that any easier. Which Kashmiri pundit 30 years later will want to try and live in Kashmir that is now 
part of the Indian Union only because there are wall-to-wall paramilitaries keeping the people at bay. There is no reason for anybody to want to live in these circumstances. And as far as I'm concerned, this most recent move by the Indian government, while it plays to a Hindu majoritarian sentiment, makes sure that Kashmiri Pandits will never return home. Sveer, may I ask you about your book of Gardens and Graves? We might easily assume that we have more pressing matters to discuss about Indian-administered Kashmir today. But what I find most compelling about your book is how poetry is presented as a primary way to understand the experiences of individuals in Kashmir. There is a way you merged an historical understanding of the militarization of post-colonial Kashmir with an ethnographic account of life in Indian-administered Kashmir. You couple this with moving photography while focusing on poetry as expressions of diverse members of Kashmiri society and the Kashmiri diaspora. It is perhaps a vague and unfair question, but I was wondering if you were in a position to comment on resistance poetry in the valley since the publication of your book. If possible, could you also speculate on the poetic expression of occupation that would be increasingly accessible whenever the Indian state's restrictions are eased in the valley? Uh, Ted and I wrote this book, as I said earlier, I wrote a series of essays on what I was observing in Kashmir when my family and I went back to our home there after 2003. I published those essays in major Indian news magazines like Outlook in particular. They were very uh, glad to take all that I wrote. And I wrote them as a series of reports on the ground saying, this is what is happening. Uh, this is what I'm seeing in Kashmir. What I see is the result of massive human rights abuses. I watch as uh, locals are being humiliated by the paramilitary soldiers who are on the ground there. I am able to walk past them with ease and authority because when I open my mouth, I sound like an Indian. I, they know I'm Kashmiri, but they can tell I'm a Hindu. So I am in a different relationship with them. But I, I watch them humiliate Kashmiri Muslims in particular routinely. I also watched the coercion with which the state government then managed civilian populations. So I wrote these series of newspaper articles reporting on what I saw. And then after writing similar articles for, I think, three or four years, I thought, I'm doing a species of journalism, which is not getting anywhere. I have certain other kinds of capacities. That is, I'm trained as a literary critic, and a lot of my writing has been on poetry. So perhaps I can contribute to the larger discussion via my own specialization. So along with a local collaborator, a young researcher there, I started collecting poems that had been written in Kashmiri. This was, I was clear about, not in Urdu. There are many, many poems being written in Urdu. But I wanted poems written in the vernacular, in Kashmiri. And I wanted poems that had been written in the last uh, then 25 years or so that were poems of the, about the conflict and about the miseries of existence, but also about resistance. And I began to realize we collected a great many poems, translated a great many poems that is in the hundreds, and most of which I decided not to republish because there was a sameness to them. You, because of your work, know that the ghazal tradition in the hands of an average practitioner can sound one poem, one ghazal can sound like another, and one nazam can sound like another. And that's what they did. But I also found a whole variety of different, uh, well, 
ghazal certainly nazams too but also experimental forms of writing that grappled with the idea of living in a conflict zone and finding in the idiom of poetry in the emotion of poetry a way of not only describing yourself under duress but also of pushing back against that duress so that's what slowly led to my writing these kinds of, i wrote some interpretive essays i wrote some political and historical essays trying to understand why kashmir had got to the point that it had trying to convince myself that my childhood in kashmir or those times that i had visited were not simply illusions that there was a time when they things seemed to be you know um, li- people lived in concord and harmony and happiness and then i began to recognize that there had always been a current of political opposition to the idea of amalgamation with india and not long after that a current of political opposition to amalgamation with pakistan so the idea of independence had slowly risen amongst large populations in kashmir and poetry began to become an archive of that political feeling too the sense in which poetry was a space in which you could mourn your losses but also imagine futures of azadi uh while i was doing this um, i became friends with a number of photojournalists who young photojournalists who were operating in kashmir and one of them javed dar showed me the pictures he had been taking in all these conflict years and i found them stunning So when I found my publisher in Delhi I showed him some of Javed's pictures and I said you know I want one of them for the cover and my publisher Asad Zaidi looked at these pictures and said no you need to do better than that we need to have a great many of them in the book and I was thrilled because the there's a kind of visual counterpoint then between these pictures between the poems and between the analytical and historical essays I had written so the book becomes a kind of composite attempt to try and make available the logic of political cultural and uh, existence in these difficult years in kashmir uh i'm sure people are still in answer to your last question i'm sure people are still writing poetry because sometimes the indirection that poetry allows is what makes it possible for people to speak against the state without ever saying things that will have them locked up or beaten or arrested or whatever else so poetry has possibilities that i thought of as in fact my phrase was these poems are an archive of political feeling not an original fra- a phrase but one that i'm happy to defend so we're going back to your collection of poetry and this collection of poetic expressions of imagining futures imagining utopias i have to end with the mention of the kashmiri poet that most listeners would be most familiar with aga shahid ali i'm aware of your lament that most of us have forgotten about shahid's broader over work and are only familiar with country without a post office in spite of this If I could take the liberty of putting you on the spot before we conclude this conversation, could I ask you to recite that poem that Shahid had dedicated to you? With great pleasure, Taran. I'll say a word about Aga Shahid Ali. 
Shahid was born in Srinagar uh, and did a great deal of his school, all, almost all of his school and college there. His father did live elsewhere for brief moments, but basically he identified with Srinagar and with Kashmir. He came to Delhi University for his advanced degrees and he also taught there briefly before he moved to the US and to Penn State University to get his PhD in English literature. But really, he wasn't, uh, he did publish a book on literary criticism, but he was a poet in the making. And he's published an enormous number of uh, volumes of poetry. But his uh, set of poems that are most pertinent to Kashmir was published in 1997. So a decade of conflict is what he had observed. And it's called uh, The Country Without a Post Office. And um, uh, the other little interesting detail about Aga Shahid Ali is just his enormous popularity. He has been translated into Kashmiri, but the number of young Kashmiris I have met who know his poems and know them intimately. In fact, when I've read them in public or talked about them, they recite along with me. I'm the one holding the book. They know the lines. Uh, they've memorized the lines. The other little detail about uh, Aga Shahid Ali that is pertinent to our conversation was for the longest time that I knew him, he thought of himself as a Kashmiri and as an Indian. And then as he watched what was happening in Kashmir from 1989 onwards, the actions of the Indian state, he began to call himself a Kashmiri American. He had changed his citizenship by then, but he made sure that he didn't call himself an Indian American, but a Kashmiri American. And that is partly born out of his understanding of the politics of Kashmir post-1989. My friendship with Shahid was the result of uh, my family and his family being friends for three generations. So this is not simply Shahid and me who were friends. He was a little older than me and I was in awe of him when I first met him when I was a young boy. But my grandfather taught his father. It was that kind of intimacy. And for me, this kind of familiar in intimacy defined the Kashmir of my childhood where there were no really visible boundaries between uh, Kashmiri Muslims and Kashmiri Pandits. There was a lot of uh, coming and going, ana jana of the kind that we imagine. So one day, uh, this is many, many years ago now, I get a phone call from Shahid says, you know what, I've dedicated a poem to you. I hope you like it. And I said, of course I will, send it to me. And he did. And it's a wonderful poem, which I'll read soon. But I'm saying all this because I think Shahid knew something. He imagined a future when the soldiers moved away from Srinagar, but he imagined a future in which our kinds of family bonds were restored. And so this is the poem. It's called A Pastoral. And I will be literary critic enough to call attention to the title. A Pastoral is an idealized landscape. And in a time of deep conflict and distress, Shahid was imagining a utopian moment, a moment when the soldiers had gone home, hence a pastoral. It has a, a little epigraph from another poet called Zbigniew Herbert. This is the epigraph. On the wall, the dense ivy of executions. And here's the poem. We shall meet again in Srinagar, by the gates of the Villa of Peace, our hands blossoming into fists till the soldiers return the keys and disappear. Again, 
we'll enter our last world, the first that vanished. In our absence from the broken city, we'll tear our shirts for tourniquets and bind the open thorns, warm the ivy into roses. Quick, by the pomegranate, the bird will say, humankind can bear everything. No need to stop the year to stories rumored in branches. We'll hear our gardener's voice the way we did as children, clear under the trees he'd planted. It's true, my death at the mosque entrance in the massacre when the call to prayer opened the floodgates. Quick, follow the silence. And dawn rushed into everyone's eyes. Will we follow the horned lark, pry open the back gate into the poplar groves, go past the search post into the cemetery, the dust still uneasy on hurried graves with no names like all new ones in the city? It's true, we'll hear our gardener again. That bird is silent all winter. Its voice returns in spring, a plaintive cry. That's when it saw the mountain falcon rip open in mid-air the blue magpie, then carry it limp from the talons. Pluck the blood. My words will echo thus at sunset by the ivy. But to what purpose? In the drawer of the cedar stand, white in the veranda, we'll find letters. When the post offices died, the mailman knew we'd return to answer them. Better if he let them speed to death, blacked out by autumn's press trust. Not like this, taking away our breath, holding it with love's anonymous scripts. See... See how your world has cracked. Why aren't you here? Where are you? Come back. Is history death there across the oceans? Quick, the bird will say, and we'll try the keys with the first one open the door into the drawing room. Mirror after mirror, textile by dust, will blind us to our return as we light oil lamps. The glass map of our country, still on the wall, will tear us to lace. We'll go past our ancestors, up the staircase, holding their wills against our hearts. Their wish was that we return, forever, and inherit. Quick, the bird will say, that to which we belong, not like this, to get news of our death after the worlds that's the poem Teren and uh, I'm very glad you asked me to read it both as a tribute to Aga Shahid Ali Bhaiya as we called him brother as my family called him but also as a utopian hope for Kashmir to return to the moment of its inclusive wonderful collectivity devoid of soldiers and paramilitaries of any kind Dear listeners, thank you for tuning in. 
Once again, that was Terence Sevilla and Suvir Kaul talking about Indian control Kashmir, the Reorganization Act of 2019, and the role of Kashmiri poetry as a medium for understanding the occupation. As always, if you want to get in touch with us and give us feedback on the podcast, contact us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and we'll carry on the conversation there. Till next time. 